When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode number six of The Music Plays the Band. I'm your host, Rob Kortz of the Dark Star Orchestra. Thanks for joining me today. I hope you all are safe and well. At first glance, my guests today might seem somewhat surprising, but it actually further demonstrates the old deadhead saying of, we are everywhere. For our featured conversation today, I'm happy to have keyboardist Aaron Magner from the transfusion band The Disco Biscuits. You wouldn't necessarily think of the dead having much of an influence on an electronic-based band, but as you'll hear from Aaron, they most certainly have. We also go the unconventional route in our cover band segment today as I talk with Gavin Tabone, director of the Barton Hills Children's Choir from Austin, Texas. What he's doing down there is pretty incredible, and I wish I would have had music teachers this cool when I was in grade school. I'm also very happy to have a new sponsor along that you'll hear about later, but before we get started, I would like to take a moment and ask you to check out our subscriber site at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and consider a monthly subscription for access to bonus content including unedited interviews and outtakes video features links to related topics some cool swag and other ways to further engage with me and support the podcast the black music moment is brought to you by the queen store branding and apparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs. Technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The Black Music Moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead, and this week we're going to take a moment to honor the legendary Willie Dixon. Dixon was born in Mississippi in 1915 and began singing as a young child. In 1936, he moved to Chicago and sang with various jazz and blues vocal groups, until 1948 when he signed with Chess Records. It's, it's here that he became one of the most important figures in the history of Chicago blues. Now, although he was still performing, he created his legacy as a songwriter, penning over 500 tunes that were recorded by legends including Chuck Berry, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, Coco Taylor, and too many others to name, really. Uh, many of his tunes were later covered by white artists, including the Rolling Stones and, of course, the Grateful Dead. He remained active as a songwriter up until his death in 1992, and he collaborated with Bob Weir in the 90s to write the Grateful Dead tune, Eternity. 
There are probably so many rock and blues tunes out there that you know and have no idea were written by Dixon. Uh, Here he is performing the same thing, a song that the Dead played early on in the 60s and then brought back towards the end of the run in the 90s. Uh, It was originally recorded by Muddy Waters, but here is the composer himself, Mr. Willie Dixon. SMS Breakdown with Brad Sarno is brought to you by Sarno Music Solutions, producing the finest musical instrument audio gear, designed and hand-built in St. Louis, Missouri since 2003, and Blue Jade Audio, St. Louis's primary audio mastering service since 1999. Uh, today, Brad is going to shine a little light on Jerry Garcia and his love of the pedal steel guitar. Hey, Brad, welcome back. Hey there, Rob. Thanks for being here again this week. We are going to stick with the, because there's so much to talk about regarding Jerry, you know. Uh, we've talked about his playing and his tone and everything, but I like. I think we need to address his affinity for the pedal steel guitar. And and I know you've dug way into the pedal steel yourself over the last decade or so, and your company, SMS, started by producing preamps for pedal steel. So I know you have a little bit of knowledge here. Um, when and why? I mean, I know he was a banjo player, and then he moved to the guitar. Why did he get into pedal steel? Well, the story goes, um, one of Jerry's good musical friends is Pete Grant. He's still around, and he loves to tell the stories. But uh, word has it that those two were driving, and um, the, uh, Buck Owens, together again, which is just probably one of the most famous country pedal steel intro tunes there is, with Tom Brumley on the pedal steel. Um, it hit the radio, and apparently Jerry just freaked out and said, I got to do that. I got to get into that. And Pete knew how to help him. And, and I think that was in 68. And, um, by some point early in 69, Jerry had gotten himself a ZB pedal steel guitar. And, um, <clears throat> story goes that he mostly taught himself. I'm sure Pete and some friends showed him some licks and ways to get around, but Jerry had an affinity to it and just dove in, absorbed it. And pretty quickly, um, got pulled in to do uh, the that famous part on Teacher Children with Crosby, Stills, right. Nash & Young, which to this day is probably the most famous pedal steel guitar part ever, you know, in the public. That's uh, so awesome. And it was done by Jerry Garcia. And he's just learning still at that point, you said? Yeah, he was still pretty green. Maybe a few months in, 
I'm not exactly <laughs> sure how the timeline works, but and it's so good. It's so beautiful. It's so uh, yeah. He really had it. That was he resonated with that instrument for sure. Did he record with any other people that you know of on pedal steel? Yeah, you know, um, he did the the teach teacher children was the big hit. Um, he did some stuff with uh, Jefferson Airplane. Um, he did, uh, you know, pretty early on started with John Dawson started New Riders, and so right. he, he did all that cool early stuff on New Riders of the Purple Sage before Buddy Cage replaced him, circa seventy one, I think. Uh, he, but he did that. He he did stuff with Stephen Stills. He did something with the Rowan Brothers. He did a cut on Brewer and Shipley. Um, some Crosby and Nash. Um, so there's know, a lot of it out there. Yeah, there's a. It's not a huge catalog, but there's a few dozen tunes out there that Jerry played, and they're all beautiful. Um, it, a thing that Jerry did, and you could really hear it on his first solo record with uh, the wheel and to lay me down. It's just that atmospheric quality pedal steel can make. It's not always country licks. It's, you know, and um, with all that drenched in reverb and echo and that real spacey atmosphere, Jerry, was he really got that. And like, even to this day, when I listen to the background steel and to lay me down, it, it almost makes me want to cry. It's just gorgeous. That's awesome. That's awesome. Here, in, here in St. Louis, I always come back here, but it's what I know and where we live. Um, there's a store here right next to my drum store, right next to Fred Pierce. It's called Scotty's Music that is it's a guitar shop but a ton of pedal steel stuff there and and didn't he hang out there didn't something famous happen there with him yeah you know scotty's scotty rest in peace um they are no longer but they were for years and they're gone yeah they finally had to fold and we lost scotty a few years ago um but yeah that was honestly it's funny because you wouldn't have thought st louis would have been pedal steel headquarters of the world but because of scotty dewitt scott um he started pretty much what was the first pedal steel dealership way back in the sixties. And, um, people from Nashville and Texas and everywhere came to him and, you know, touring artists, when they came through, they'd come visit. And, um, we know that Garcia came through there at least two times when some fun music happened, I think in 70 and 71, uh, Scotty, even I, I did a lot of audio mastering for Scotty's old from his old tapes instructional materials and stuff and he had a tape he said hey brad can you convert this to digital and it was a reel of uh jam with um it was uh the new writers guys and bob and jerry and then a a guitar rep from gibson was there who was probably the best picker in the house that day and but actually jerry was on guitar then and buddy cage was playing steel at that point um but yeah they came through i've the guys at scotty's have told me stories about delivering a steel to Jerry at the Fox and getting handed a big wad of cash and <laughs> running home as fast as he could with the pockets full of a couple thousand dollars. And I don't know, it's funny stories, but yeah, St. Louis has always been the St. Louis, I mean, the steel guitar Mecca. Uh, we ho- housed uh, the international steel guitar convention for years and years. Right. Um, and that finally fizzled a few years ago, but um, yeah, this is a pedal steel town in that respect. That's kind of where you started got started selling your wares wasn't it um it's no i I pretty much started online but that's where i got my first steel where i took my first lessons um yeah and so i hung out there a lot i knew those guys really well it's a great bunch of people um right on fun little community it's a really difficult instrument to play isn't it you know it's like anything it's like driving a car is difficult you're coordinating all four limbs and your eyes and your head and and so steel's the same way and eventually it becomes natural like any musical instrument, but it can go as 
deep as you want. And yeah, you've got your right foot on a volume pedal. You got your left foot wrangling between three and 10 mechanical pedals. You got your both knees on knee levers. You got three finger picks. You have a bar in your left hand. And so, yeah, you're juggling a whole lot. At that, one makes, time. <laughs> that makes drumming sound easy. <laughs> <laughs> right on, man. Well, thank you so much. That's really cool. Um, I'm going to try and get some examples up on the website for people to check out. And uh, maybe we can get some stuff from you as well. As always, thank you for your uh, wisdom and knowledge. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Sounds good, Rob. Take care, man. All right. Thanks, Brad. If you're feeling stuck or confused about the direction your life is going in, or you've just lost touch with your authentic self, the Authenticity Academy is here to help, offering you online courses and private coaching. www.authenticity-academy.com As I mentioned earlier, we're taking the unconventional route with our There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town conversation today. Gavin Tabone is the director of the Barton Hills Choir in Austin, Texas. He's exposing a whole new generation to the music of the Grateful Dead, as well as other legends of rock and roll. If, if you haven't seen or heard them yet, uh, go check them out on YouTube for something that will truly brighten your day. Hey, Gavin, how are you today? I'm okay. How are you? I'm hanging in there, man. Thanks for taking the time to be with me. My pleasure. All right. So Austin, Texas, the Barton Hills Choir. How does it come to be? that a grade school choir starts performing Grateful Dead tunes? Well, uh, you know, it all happened about four or five years ago when I was uh, teaching a third grade class and one of my third graders came in and uh, he knew I was a, a fan of the Grateful Dead because I have you know, Grateful Dead posters on my wall. And he told me that he'd been learning a Grateful Dead tune in his guitar class. And I asked him, you know, which one? And he said, a Touch of Grey. And, you know, I kind of just bagged the lesson plan that day. And we, we watched the, uh, the video, the official Grateful Dead video of Touch of Grey. And I started arranging it for them in class. And we spent the entire, you know, 45 minutes of class learning it and, you know, the different parts. And it really worked. So later on that day, when I had my uh, fifth grade choir, they were rehearsing for a show that was in a couple of weeks. Uh, I just, you know, gave them the lyrics and I taught them the parts and they loved it. And so we performed it at a show a couple weeks later, you know, with the full band and uh, we recorded it, put the video up on our Facebook page and, you know, I didn't really check the views or anything, but the next day my guitarist texted me and said, uh, Gavin, have you checked the views on this video? And I said, no. And I went on, went on the choir Facebook page and it had like, you know, 100,000 views or something crazy. And I was like, what is going on here? And then I clicked on the uh, the shares. And I noticed that the, the Grateful Dead page, the official Grateful Dead page had shared our video. And I was like, oh, my wow. God. So I was like, okay. Uh, so about a few weeks later, we um, we did – ripple in my classroom like kind of like an official video you know we took our time with it and we put that one up and that one really exploded um you know last time i looked it was almost at four million views um and you know just kind of uh snowballed from there we we started doing we we recorded enough grateful dead tunes to put out a cd called uh, dead songs volume one and then we did enough for a second one and uh it's just been a lot of fun. You know, the cool thing about the Grateful Dead is that they kind of encourage 
people to cover their music and, um, and you know, it, it, and the fan base is so incredible that uh, it's, it's just really put the choir on the map. That's fantastic. What, what, what is, what's the kids reactions when you first play the grateful dead for them and they hear these tunes? You know, for, for the kids that they're not thinking about, you know, Ooh, you know, the, the dead scene or, you know, you know, everything that goes with that. They're just listening to the melodies and, um, how the song makes them feel. And, you know, my job as a music teacher is if I love the music, I try to get them to love it as much as I do. So, um, you know, with, with the Grateful Dead music, you know, I've been listening to Grateful Dead since I was a kid. That wasn't hard to do. Um, and I, they loved it as much as I did. And, you know, and, and for me, it's all about picking the right tunes for the kids. You know, uh, it has to have a great melody and that's not, that's not hard with the Grateful Dead tune. And I like tunes that have a good form and good structure and kind of a creative structure. Like a song like uh, Touch of Grey has great verses, great choruses, a great bridge, um, has an outro, intro, a lot of things you can do with the tunes. And so I, I do try to pick tunes like that. And the Grateful Dead has so many of them. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, sitting down behind the drum kit, I mean, especially, you know, you play a song like Box of Rain or something. I mean, there's so many different parts and sections and so many weird little or, or like the wheel, you know, tunes that have like, you know, every now and then, you know, you're, you're laid back playing in four, four and all of a sudden, whoops, here comes a three, four measure. <laughs> right. Right. I That's mean, awesome. you've been playing the tunes for years, but it says probably comes naturally for you. But for me, it's like, I'm like counting in my head, but those little, those little weird parts is what really makes it fun to arrange for the kids. That's fantastic. And you do other artists as well now, don't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we kind of, you know, we do a lot of different stuff, but I, I think our, uh, our emphasis is on like kind of the classic rock realm. And and with that, you've been able to back up a couple of famous people as well along the way, haven't you? Yeah. You know, we have, uh, we performed with the flaming lips. Uh, we were the, the closer for their show, um, in Austin. Um, we played with Charlie Sexton, you know, we played with you guys. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's just been such an honor to play with so many, great musicians over the years. Did I see David something Gans, somewhere? Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I thought I saw something somewhere that I didn't know about Roger Waters. Is that right? Yeah. So when Roger Waters came to Austin in uh, 2013, 14, uh, I might be off of my years here, but, uh, and did the wall when he was doing that tour, he was using a children's choir for uh, another brick in the wall. And we got that. And uh, we, we performed with them. Um, yeah, and that was a, a crazy experience, but, you know, a lot of fun. Big stuff, man. And, and we, you know, I, I know this for sure. You can tell everybody else. During the pandemic, you've had to start teaching remotely. That's right. Uh, but that hasn't stopped you at all. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing? Yeah. Uh, you know, with, with the quality of the phones these days, you know, you, you can get decent audio and good video from the kids and they can do it by themselves at home. Um, and I schlepped all my gear from my classroom right when the pandemic hit, I kind of had a feeling that I wouldn't be going into my room for a while. 
So we had like a couple hours to clear out our classrooms and I brought my computer home and my keyboard and my recording gear. And the first one we did was this land is your land. And then we started doing um, Grateful Dead tunes. And, you know, it's kind of fun because, you know, that there's, uh, you know, like there, there's people all over the country that I've never met in person that I've become really good friends with because we've been doing um, these recordings together. Uh, right. You know, Grateful Dead musicians and cover bands have been contributing to these tunes with the kids. And, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of gotten it down. It's, it's pretty time consuming. It's a lot easier to have the kids in the classroom right when I'm in front of them and I'm able to direct them and conduct them. But, uh, but I've been really, um, I've been really, I've been really impressed with those results so far of these re remote recordings. And a lot of that has to do with the kids and the musicians that I've been getting and how they've been doing it at home. That's so great. For those of you who haven't seen any of it, there's all over YouTube. It's all over the Barton Hills choir has a Facebook page as well. And, and everybody should really check it out because I wish, I wish when I was in grade school, I would have had a music teacher that was that cool and was turning me on to these kind of songs back then. Um, great, great stuff you're doing, my friend. Well, thank you. My, thank you so much. Thanks for taking a few minutes with me today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. That's Gavin Tabone from the Barton Hills Choir in Austin, Texas. Like I said, check them out, folks. They're on YouTube, Facebook, anywhere you can find them. Check out these videos. Such good stuff. Have a good day, my friend. You too. Thank you. All right, that's uh, that's really good stuff from Gavin. It's it's I can't even describe how cool it is what he's doing down there. Uh, before I introduce you to our newest sponsor here on the podcast, I'd like to take a minute to tell you a little bit about uh, my subscription-based service over at Patreon. It's each uh, www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays, and I have three or four different levels that you can subscribe at on a monthly basis. And what I'm offering there is a whole lot more than what you're getting here. There's a lot of outtakes and uh, unedited versions of the interviews. I'm doing a lot of videos uh, of the expanded black music moment in a video form, showing some of the stuff that Brad Sarno and I talk about in video form as well and extrapolating on that a little bit. And then some videos just hanging out at my house and what we're doing here on the break. There's also uh, some really cool community stuff. Uh, at, at certain levels, the, the $12 level, which is uh, the community level, there's a monthly hang. It'll be like a Zoom meeting where we just hang out and uh, talk about whatever. And then uh, a little further up, there's even opportunities for some one-on-one -on -one level, one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. Uh, it can be talking about the band or the dead. Or, uh, it can be a drum lesson, uh, really whatever you're interested in. But uh, I got a lot of cool things going on over there that really add to the content you're hearing here. So uh, I ask you to kindly uh, check it out for me, please, at www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays. I'm so happy to welcome a new sponsor to the program today, Grateful Sweats. On Shakedown or online, Grateful Sweats is your first stop for subtle dead designs. Check them out at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats and see for yourself. These are designs that only other heads will really get. You know, when you're wearing uh, the state of Tennessee with Jed in the middle of it and someone says, nice shirt, you, you know they get it. Uh, a subtle dead cap makes its point. No one does sweats like Grateful Sweats. Hoodies, sweatpants, joggers, tees, and much more. Subtle dead designs at etsy.com slash shop slash Grateful Sweats. 
My guest for our featured conversation today is Aaron Magner, keyboardist for the transfusion band The Disco Biscuits. I've seen these guys many times when our paths have crossed on the road or at festivals and always enjoy it, but never really would equate it to the dead world. And it was only through a mutual friend of ours that I found out what a dead fan Aaron is and that they've had a huge influence on him and his approach to music. I should also mention that he's an original member of Bill Kreutzmann's Billy and the Kids. Uh, This turned out to be a really fun conversation with some great insight and stories. You know, I'd seen them quite a few times, but I never really met Aaron. We might have met with a handshake one time. Uh, But this was the first time we really got to know each other. And uh, it was was a great time. I really enjoyed the interview. And I hope you do, too. So here is Aaron Magner of the Disco Biscuits. Okay, good morning. I'm here with Aaron Magner from the Disco Biscuits. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Rob. I can't thank you enough for taking the time out of your day. Um, You are in Philly, if I'm correct? Suburbs of Philly, yeah. How are you doing? How are you spending this time where we can't tour? You know, um, I I feel like it took me a long time to um, come up with the reply, hanging in there. (laughs) How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. Um, I'm well. We've got a lot of people under this roof. I've got three young kids, um, so that kind of is interesting. Uh, my wife is also home and doing the whole uh, virtual school thing with them because they kind of need a facilitator, um, you know, and with all this, I'm trying to do everything that I do. And there's just a lot of chaos. I exist within the chaos. Chaos is a good word. I'm, I'm very blessed right now. My kids are able to go to school. Um, but when they were home, chaos. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm embracing it. Yeah. So tell me a little bit. I know you were born and raised in Philly. Tell me a little bit how you got started as a musician. Uh, Yeah. So um, I guess the the very genesis of it um, was my next door neighbor was uh, the neighborhood piano teacher. Um, And when I was young, you know, like everybody in the early 80s, we all took piano lessons from, you know, the neighborhood piano teacher. And I kind of took to it and stuck with it, I guess, more than the rest of the neighborhood kids and always gravitated towards that. Um, My parents were supportive of, you know, me taking an interest in it um, and eventually like moved me into a conservatory of music at like 10 years old. And that's when I was like, okay, I'm kind of done with this music thing. Um, And they were also cool with that. And then around 13, um, I decided that I wanted to get back into it. And my parents were like, sure, you know, we'll find you another teacher. And they found me somebody that introduced me to uh, jazz. And that was kind of a a turning point right there. And I kind of, you know, didn't want to study this classical music anymore. And I only wanted to know about jazz. Um, And then that kind of led me into my uh, high school career and, you know, got another instructor that kind of started introducing me to some of the professional Philadelphia jazz musicians at the time. Um, and then at 18, decided to um, stay stay in Philadelphia to go to college. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, um, mainly to maintain my jazz contacts in the city. You know, at that point, I kind of like just started playing out a little bit, you know, jazz gigs and, you know, sideband stuff basically but i wanted to maintain those connections which was you know definitely an impetus for wanting to stay in the city um and so went to penn and my 
freshman year is when I was introduced to some older cats who was, you know, Mark and John from the Disco Biscuits. Um, and that's how kind of how the Disco Biscuits formed. <laughs> and I, I, you know, eventually by my junior year of college, um, I had declared music as a major. But at that point, the Disco Biscuits had kind of um, started touring a little bit, dabbling into touring. Um, and the summer between my junior and my senior year of college, we had another tour booked and I couldn't really do the, you know, keeping up with my courses. And at that point, you know, online and virtual things, it wasn't really a thing yet. Um, you know, so I was having a difficult time kind of juggling that with a previous tour. And by the time we were doing our second national tour, um, I decided to just drop out of school and do the tour and then see what happened from there. And yada, 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 here we are, you know, 28 years later. Who to thunk it, right? So when, when you're getting started and you're really getting into the jazz now in your teenage years, who are some of your first big influences keyboard-wise? Um, you know, Red Garland, um, you know, with a left-hand comping thing. Obviously, you know, Chick Corea, Herbie Hancock, um, Keith Jarrett, a lot of Bill Evans in terms of phrasing and chord uh, voicings. Um, I existed in this world, and, you know, maybe this is the segue, where my two passions in music, I kind of skipped over all popular music, you know, and my friends kind of, you know, make fun of me for this because I miss the, you know, Nirvana revolution, right? And I right. got into classic rock for sure. I mean, I remember the day that, you know, I was exposed to um, Led Zeppelin for the first time and I definitely took a deep dive, had um, an older cousin that I really like admired um, and, you know, would get into like record collections and the Who and classic rock and stuff like that. But I really went from uh, classic rock and jazz and then when I was exposed also by this older cousin to the Grateful Dead, it was kind of like I existed in, in that world, <laughs> you know, and everything else, with the exception of maybe new age music, which was just kind of, uh, you know, coming into its own, right, as like synthesizers were becoming a thing in the 80s, right. you know, they were definitely a respected instrument, you know, the decade prior to that. But, you know, now people were using it for, I don't know, meditative purposes as we were kind of more in tune with our chakras in the 80s and stuff like that. So I, I was into that type of stuff, too, and always into synthesizers. Um, but, yeah, pop music, I definitely skipped over. So it was this, you know, Venn diagram of Grateful Dead and jazz that I existed in. So, so how old were you when your cousin turned you on to the dead when you first heard it? Um, I was 10 years old, um, 10, right on. Casey Jones, definitely being the first song. Now I had heard the name of the band before. And at this point I was like into, I was also, there was some pop music. Now that I think about quiet riot, I really liked, um, my, this older cousin that was so influential for my musical taste, uh, was really into Van Halen. So therefore I was really into Van um, Twisted Sister, I remember really liking. And so when I heard Grateful Dead, I just assumed it was part of that, you know, Quiet Riot, Twisted Sister type thing. And then I heard Casey Jones. <laughs> and I remember being so conflicted, you know, I was like, oh, is this the anomaly of their repertoire? You know, they're like, you know, how sometimes like uh, hair bands have, you know, power yeah, it's balance. Like, <laughs> it's like listening to Kiss for the first time and hearing Beth. Right. <laughs> 
Um, so um, I remember, you know, when I was introduced to the Griffin, I was like, okay, this is cool. And, and, and it wasn't something where there was a eureka moment of, oh, this speaks to me on so many different levels. It was more of, I had so much respect um, for this older cousin that was so influential on me, you know, like he wore a jean jacket with some, you know, chalk paint on the back and I would do the same, right. You know, emulating your, 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 you know, older cousin that you admire. Um, and because he was in the Grateful Dead, into the Grateful Dead, I decided that I got needed to get into the Grateful Dead. Um, and he actually was the one that took me to see, um, it was Jerry for the first time and, 89 at the Spectrum in September of 89. I must have been 12 or 13 at the time. Um, so that was the first time that I actually um, saw the Fat Man. And then uh, after that, started seeing dead shows at a pretty precocious age, too. It's, it's, got a, it's so cool that you're, you, know, you had a family member who turned you on and, and gave you the songs. But that's not what grabbed i mean that's great he turned you on but that's not what got you into it so to speak what musically what grabbed you about this music that made what was that aha moment i think it was discovering something new right you know and and in those days and i, I sound like such an old man for even saying this you know now like you have the ability to go on to spotify or whatever and you know go down however long or short of a rabbit hole you want to discover things but in those days it was you know you would get an album or borrow an album and listen to it and then discover that there was yet another album you know and then once you get past the albums you discover that there are shows and so many songs that weren't on albums and it was just kind of like how deep can i go and the deeper that i went down the rabbit hole the more organically into it i started to get and at that point in time, I was kind of coming of age into, you know, my own type of like counterculture, right? At, you know, 13, 14, 15, um, wearing tie-dye and bandanas and beads. And I went to a, you know, very hippie-centric arts and music summer camp that was also influential for me, you know, having the confidence to become a musician. Um, so that, you know, vibe that I had there was kind of embraced by, you know, a very liberal thinking type of summer camp where you know guys bunks and girls bunks weren't separated by a lake they were separated by a, 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 a internal door that connected the two bunks and counselors grew pot in the cornfields and you know it was uh i don't think that type of thing exists anymore <laughs> i'll tell you what the summer camp that i went to and i'm still involved with is where i learned a ton about the grateful dead tell me. that was where that was where we'd sit around at night on the beach listening to our cassettes or when I was a counselor there turning on our campers to the dead. Uh -huh. Summer camp is huge when it comes to the Grateful Dead, sleepaway camp for and, sure. And you know what? Now that I think about it, I haven't thought about, about this guy. Randy was his name, but, you know, he chaperoned me to a dead show in 1990. So he was one of the counselors at the summer camp. And then, you know, when the dead would always come back around and, I think it was every September, every March, whatever you know the frequency was on the East Coast. Uh, he was one of my chaperones. That's what makes it one of my early shows when I was too young to be trusted. There it is. Summer camp comes back again. So as, as you know, you're hearing all this, but you're studying jazz at the time. Yeah. Um, was is there a time when you're developing as a musician that you got to start playing Grateful Dead tunes? Not really. And I'm, I, I, 
don't understand why. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, when we were communicating over email, I was like, what's so interesting is that, you know, such a passion for this band, you know, since I was a kid, but I never really delved into the catalog from a musician standpoint, right? Yeah, there were some things. I definitely remember playing like a private, you know, Christmas party when I was 14 or 15 years old and realizing that I'm just the background music and that's totally cool. And making 300 bucks at a private gig when you're 15 years old playing piano. That's huge it's, money. It's huge money. I, I, in Corona times, it's huge money too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'll take a local gig for 300 bucks right now and not think twice about it, man. I am all over that. So um, I definitely like remember looking around and realizing, you know, nobody gives a shit about what I'm playing right now. I'm like running through my real book of standards and, you know, nobody cares. And then I remember kind of like doing an improvisation and falling into um, Fire on the Mountain, right? Which, you know, in a, like some sort of jazz rendition and having a lot of fun with that. But aside from that, um, you know, and, and maybe kind of just toying around with some other stuff, I never really delved into the catalog from musician standpoint until years later you know and and even at the infantile uh beginning stages of the disco biscuits you know we played morning dew when we were a college frat band a few times you know probably played the other one a couple of times as you know as we were building up our repertoire of original songs um you know but they definitely fell by the wayside and i didn't really dig into the catalog until uh, you know Decades later. Wow. Well, then, so you're not delving into it musically per se from, from the point of view of being a musician. Correct. But as you're, as you're listening to this, you're still developing as a musician. Would you think that any of their, any of the keyboard, and I, I would assume you're listening to all the different eras at that point, not, I mean, you're listening to 60s, 70s, 80s and, and checking it all out. If I'm, if, if I would assume, yes. Of course. And, you know, like all of us, we have, you know, periods of time where we gravitate towards. Right. Um, so um, yeah. what I was, what I wanted to ask was then, even though you're not playing it at that point and not being directly influenced, do you think your playing is being indirectly influenced by hearing what's going on in the Grateful Dead keyboard world? Uh, yes. And, and uh, you know, even more so than that, you know, once I actually decided to dig into the, the catalog from the musician standpoint, these songs, as they are, are for, you know, all of us that are probably listening to this podcast, were so ingrained in my very being, you know, so ingrained in my DNA um, that at that point, it, it was just so easy to put all of the pieces together. You know, it was kind of like, I don't know, a, a child whose parents were bilingual, you know, and all of a sudden, without even thinking about it, they're able to speak multiple languages by the time that they're able to, you know, form sentences, right? Um, right. Kind of that type of thing. So, you know, definitely just, just instilled in my DNA. And also, you know, yeah, was I influenced by the keyboard players? Of course. Um, mainly, um, Hornsby. You know, whom, whom I definitely, I mean, when you think about it, that was kind of my coming of age, right? And I'm sure it's been debated on every podcast as long as be an official member of the Grateful Dead, I don't even care. But like in terms of the um, influence that, that, you know, 
Hornsby and Brent played um, in my playing. I think it is definitively there, and I think it's become more defined um, over the last you know, six, seven, eight years since I really kind of like you know got into the catalog. And when you know learning these songs for the first time on my instrument, I, de- I definitely go through the eras, you know. And I mean, number one, having YouTube available to you to be able to you know really learn a song right um it's just an incredible experience because you get to immerse yourself in that concert experience you know and when watching it and playing along with it you know i'm tapped into the energy and vibe that you know only existed when you were like in attendance at these shows and i really feel um teleported there but you know i definitely like to borrow because it's all so different you know everybody's playing everybody's instrumentation um but I like to borrow influences from all of the keyboard players. And then once I take that and process it, then I'd like to make it my own, you know, right. I like to feel like I have my own voice in this, but still being respectful of borrowing from the past and knowing where this music uh, came from. That's, that's interesting to me because with your jazz background, if I had to have guessed my, my answer would have been, yeah, you've probably been really heavily influenced by Keith because of his jazz voicings and you know a little bit more of his jazz background. But then so many people who I've spoken to, and this was true for myself as well, and actually for my bandmates, everybody gravitates, it seems, towards the era when they first got yeah. turned on or when they got to see them. You know, my first show was in 87. The late 80s is my favorite stuff. I mean, and, you can't, and that's, can't argue with pattern. that. No, God, especially from a drumming standpoint, you know, you know, I'm a big Mickey fan, and he's just he's a monster during that period. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them are. Um, so I, I find that very interesting, though, how everybody is gravitates towards when they really first got turned on. I mean, in, that, in, uh, including parts of the catalog, right? So you know, if you think about some of the songs that were introduced in the you know early '90s period, you know, or '92, '93, you know, those songs definitely don't go down as um, you know de- defining songs of of their catalog but to me i have you know an attachment to lazy river road <laughs> you know yeah for or, sure. i would say from a keyboard perspective i would imagine for me even eternity because when it gets into uh-huh, those jams uh-huh. it's all those killer keyboard voicings and those chords that are going out and that's not a staple but it's a way cool tune especially yeah. from a keyboard perspective yeah yeah for sure right on man um I want to talk about the band. About the, well, first of all, is anybody else in the band a deadhead? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, there's certainly not not deadheads. Um, you right. know, I, I think that I'm the only one that kind of like just had this, you know, passion and still, you, you know, Mark was always more in like the fish camp, right? And in the right. early days, we would have, you know, the fish versus Grateful Dead, you know, uh, conversations, I would say, you know, um, and it wasn't like one of us would win out, but it was definitely like, you know, he stayed in his camp, I stayed in my camp, we would definitely, you know, go to, I would go to fish shows and, you know, been to many and, you know, he's been to many, you know, dead shows and then company and everything like that. Um, you know, John definitely had his experiences in the eighties, uh, you know, seeing dead shows too. I think we all have a mutual respect of, of the band for sure. 
Um, right on. Just, just I've, I've got that overzealous passion for it <laughs> that everybody that's listening to this podcast also does. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, you know, the, the your band, the Disco Biscuits, you're, you're really firmly entrenched in the electronica and the trance type thing, which is very much not what the Grateful Dead did. But the essence of your music is improvisation, just like every other jam band. How does that translate from what you get from the Grateful Dead's jamming into an electronic world? Um, I talk a lot about like the ethos of improvisation, um, you know, which I, I, I'm trying to like imagine what it must have been like in you know 1967 for the Grateful Dead you know, where there were no rules yet. And I guess if you back it up from there, you know, jazz musicians had definitely been improvising for, you know, decades before that, but not as free form as the Grateful Dead was, you know, jazz music was kind of like, okay, here's the head of the song. And now it opens up into improvisations, but improvisations were always rooted in jazz over the chord changes of the song. You know, and then it'll be your turn to solo, your turn to solo, maybe we'll do a little bass and drum thing, and then come back to the head of the song. Um, right. You know, the Grateful Dead would just like tear that whole thing open, and there were no rules, you know, and there's still no rules, right? The rules right. are only the confines that you make as a band or as a musician, you know, independent of your band and what you think your contribution is within an improvisational environment. So I feel like that kind of paved the way for everybody just to say, fuck it, <laughs> you know, we can do whatever we want. And, and the dev, the original guys to say, fuck it, you know, we're going to play music that is rooted in country and music that is rooted in rock and roll and music that is rooted in, you know, Americana and, you know, all sorts of spacey stuff and, you know, musical masturbation, even if you will, you know, for, for, you know, a half hour that you subject, you know, fans to on a nightly basis. And, you know, that to me is some of my favorite stuff, you know, obviously right. notorious for people, you know, okay, this is my bathroom break period of time, but, you know, to me, I think that's awesome. That's just like, you know, letting the musicians get completely lost in what, Ever it is that they want and you know talk about some like um you know some 87 89 kind of like space stuff or for that matter even when hornsby joining and you know some of those first msg shows with hornsby and jerry coming back out onto stage for space and the dynamic between the two of those are some of my favorite moments and still some of my favorite drum space moments are these dead and company shows that are happening you know, Some of the stuff they're doing is so cool. It's so cool. And, you know, my friends or whoever I'm with, you know, are like, really? <laughs> like, you know, this is like, this is my favorite part of the show. Like, these songs are great. I love looking around and seeing, you know, the, the older generation, a younger generation that never got to see it. I love everything about these Dead & Company shows right now. But, you know, I think that the drum and space part where Mickey really gets to, you know, come out and I mean Mickey's always been into it you know whether it's like a whole bunch of like horns and you know or bringing up crazy other drummers from you know other countries and whatever it is like that's Mickey's time to shine but it still is Mickey time, Mickey's time to shine but now with the you know even more of an added uh use of electronics you know and 
his influences, his world influences, and bringing in some other people to help with those electronics. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. I do too. And then you add a third player because now O'Teal, who's an amazing drummer in his own right, comes out and plays as a third drummer up there with him. That's right. And it just makes it that much bigger. I, I you know, I'm my favorite part of Dead and Company is definitely what's going on in the drum solos. Yep. Um, speaking of the drums, are you guys tied to a click track on everything you do? I know that you and uh, Alan are, are slaved together. I saw some stuff about it where your, your computers are slaved together with a click. Is a click there for every song you guys play? No. Um, so otherwise you're, you're a, you know, a, a slave to the computer, right? Which is definitely not right. what we want it to be. We want the computer to be, um, you know, a part of the band. The problem is, is that obviously the computer can't necessarily think and make, you know, knee jerk reactions the way that the musicians do interacting with each other musically. But what the computer can do is, um, you know, help participate in, loops right that are played on the spot so it's not just bringing in previous loops that you know were written you know a week before a year before whatever it's all click in right and he's the only one me and him actually are the only ones that have clicked in our ears so we'll be in a jam and we'll click in and you know as you know sometimes when you're you know pressing the tap tempo button and then the click finally comes after you press it four times it doesn't necessarily you know, get exactly where everybody is, you know, it's right. somewhere close to that. And sometimes we'll have to do a reset. And once you get somewhere close to it, you know, within like a BPM whole play to the click. So we'll drag the band back or forward, you know, that BPM and kind of the band is none the wiser, you know, at that point. But once he right. gets the band there, now we're locked. And once his computer, once he's clicked to, into his computer, my computer is slave to his computer. So now my computer is also synced with the band. And that enables me to do whatever it is that I need to do. If I'm playing a, you know, a pad line on one keyboard, I can loop that pad line so that I can now do something else with my right hand as opposed to have to play you know, four notes of a pad. And now I've got that hand free and I can kind of create loops from there. So that's how that works. Gotcha. In, in addition to that click, you know, a lot of the music you guys play, with you know, because of this, the nature of the beast, the the rhythms are very. It's a steady, constant beat. So does that limit Alan's ability to or opportunity to improvise? Does he have to more hold steady, so you guys can, or is he able to go out as well? Interesting. I mean, it is kind of the nature of that type of music, right? You know, trance is kind of called trance. I think for a reason. If it's repetitive enough, it will put you into a trance. Um, Alan is also, one of his nicknames is, you know, the, the robot. <laughs> so Alan will, you know, get into that beat and stay there and be our constant and be our rock um, so that we can do all the things that we need to do around, you know, improvisational music. Is there some movement with it? Of course, you know, it makes it powerful when the drums actually drop out, you know, for four bars, for eight bars. It makes it powerful when it comes back in and it's just kick drum for another eight bars and then the snare can get added in after that. You know, so when you add these elements or subtract these elements, piecemeal um, is really where you get, you know, that type of, of transfer. Right. Uh, who in the band, do all four of you write? All four of you contributing as writers? Um, uh, the, the, the three of us. 
Three. Um, with, with John being the, the primary songwriter. Yeah. And, and much like the dead, you all start with your writing and working out the songs and developing the pieces on stage and in a live setting before you take it to the studios. Am I right about that? Yeah. When, um, yeah. Is, is John doing most of the lyric writing as well? Yeah. You, usually the, the lyrics stay with the songwriter typically. I, I listen to a bunch of, you know, a lot of the lyrics, uh, a lot of, you have quite a few songs that are essentially their story songs. Um, which was a huge part of the Grateful Dead, you know, t- the, the story songs and telling the story. And sure. I was wondering if Hunter and Barlow have had any influence on on the lyrical writing. I'm not sure if he has because how influenced is John by that or anybody who's writing the lyrics for that matter? I can't imagine that, you know, anybody that has um, the admiration and respect for the amount of not just quantity, but quality within that quantity of the catalog of the Grateful Dead, that you don't have that mutual admiration and respect for both Hunter and, and Barlow. Um, and what was what was particularly cool about Hunter, so you know, I did a stint for however many years with uh, you know, Billy and the Kids, and at one point, Hunter gave, um, gave Billy a bunch of lyrics that you know, I don't just lyrics sitting around. I'm not really sure what the impetus was. And, you know, Billy sent us these lyrics of Hunter songs that weren't songs yet, you know, and they all have to do with you know, gambling, <laughs> um, you know, but like, it was pretty cool taking a look at, you know, some raw lyrics that haven't, hadn't been paired yet to music. I'm not sure whether anything ever transpired with those, but that was pretty cool. You're, you're an original member of Billy and the Kids. How did that come about for you to end up playing with Billy? Um, so it, it came about from the, the Disco Biscuits pairing with, with Billy and Mickey. Um, and, and you know, I was telling this story the other day to a friend. It was just one of those things, the genesis of it was kind of just, you know, manifesting it and, you know, having the world kind of work its magic for that manifestation to happen. Um, we had needed to take a year off of our annual festival that we do as the Disco Biscuits Camp Disco. Um, and we, we kind of had some interest in, uh, with Gathering of the Vibes, wanting to do something with the Disco Biscuits. And I remember talking uh, to now our, our mutual booking agent, Hank Sachs, and just kind of like, you know, thinking about like, what, what, what cool things can we do? You know, is there um, some sort of like special musical thing? Can we bring up like a special musical guest? It's just not something that disco biscuits typically do, uh, bringing up musical guests. Um, and at that point in time, it was like, you know, 2014 or something like that. So, you know, GD50 wasn't even a thought yet um, in, in the GD world. I mean, it probably wasn't Shapiro's world, but it certainly wasn't a real thing. Um, and I remember saying, I was like, Oh, what about like, you know, I mean, if it's gathering the vibes, what about, you know, doing something with Billy and Mickey and Hank was like, that's a great idea. And then sure enough, a couple months later, um, I was playing a show with the side project up in Connecticut and Ken Hayes, the promoter of gathering, uh, came out and slipped a piece of paper across the table, hanging out backstage. And I kind of thought it was going to be like an offer for gathering of the vibes. Like, Oh, is this like a really like 
big number that this is so old school, you know, or, 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 or is he going to be like a dick and be like, Hey, I heard you thought that you were getting an offer. Here's my offer kid. Zero. You know, like I didn't know which way it was going to go. Um, but the, the paper said, you know, the disco biscuits with, uh, you know, Nicky Hart and Bill Kreutzman, and he was able to help connect the dots and make the offers appropriately to each entity, you know, disco biscuits and you know, Mickey's camp and Billy's camp where everybody was in agreement and, we decided to do it and it was, it was definitely fun, but you know, Billy and I kind of like hit it off on a, a, a personal level, you know, we just like, he, he's a really amenable, funny, friendly guy. Um, yes, he is. And yeah. And so we kind of hit it off and that was sort of like the, the Genesis along with, you know, Benji Eisen, who was uh, for the last couple of years prior to that, you know, out in Kauai and, uh, you know, helping Billy write his uh, autobiography or whatever it's described as. And so with the, um, you know, help of Benji to facilitate it, um, you know, kind of put together this band of some of the younger influencers, um, you know, of of music. um, And that's how it kind of started. When when you're playing with him, and I know you guys haven't done anything for a little while, but hopefully you will get to again soon one day. When you're playing with him, is he looking for a specific approach to the songs, or does he just let you go and do your thing? <laughs> I don't think I don't think Billy has an approach to songs. <laughs> <laughs> he just goes for it. Right? I, I mean, that's like that's the beauty of Bill Kreutzman, right? You know. You put them behind the drums, and it's you know very binary. It's like you know off or on. Uh, um, I'm not really sure what type of opinion he has about music, other than that was a fun experience to have. Um, and I thought that that was kind of like so so pure. Um, and I mean, I remember vividly these first rehearsals. And, and mind you, you know this is all you know the year leading up to GB50. So nobody knew how everything was going to change at that point. Um, you know, and Billy had obviously, you know, done whatever, a couple incarnations of, you know, Grateful Dead, you know, Post Jerry and, you know, whatever dead tunes that he played with Seven Walkers and stuff like that. But, you know, how deep he was going into the catalog, you know, I, I don't know. Not to mention, you know, how deep the catalog was even at, you know, in, in the summer of 95, you know, was so deep that there were so many songs that, you know, were not ever resurrected for decades. You know, you, you take like even, you know, Here Comes Sunshine, you know, ranging from 74 to 92 or whatever it was. I mean, that's just right. like crazy, you know, what an amazing song to have such a gap period of time. Anyway, so we're, we're rehearsing, you know, one of the few rehearsals that Billy and the kids had. Um, and I think we were doing, like, Sitting on Top of the World or, or Cream Puff or so one of those, like, fairly esoteric uh, early songs. And Billy's kind of got his eyes closed and we're playing it. And, and you know, we stopped playing the song. And he's like, far out, man. I mean, it's amazing that the guy says far out as part of his vernacular. Right, um, you know, ah, oh, far out, man. You know, like, what's the name of that song? Like, and that—that's awesome. Like, you know, here he is, you know, teleported back to when you know he was a kid, you know, which is probably the last time that he played Cream before, <laughs> you know. And it's and it's somewhere in you know we're talking about DNA before. It's somewhere in his DNA, right? 
you know, so to kind of like awaken that for a little bit was, was really neat to witness. Right on. I, yeah, it's the few times I've gotten to see him in his side projects, BK three, whatever it is. It's it. Not, there's no rules. He just goes for it, man. You know, and that's like, that's the beauty of him for sure. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're playing in your other groups, I know you have a lot of side projects, Conspirator and Electron and Spaga. Does your dead influence get to show up in those side projects as well? Um, yeah, you know, it, it, especially since, you know, since Billy and the Kids where I had to, like, build this entire musical repertoire of, like, oh, okay, now I've got, like, hundreds of songs that I kind of, like, need to learn or be able to, you know, recall um, you know, even if it's just like a, a, a jam session down the street at like my local, you know, venue art more music hall, right? Um, right. you know, the, it definitely creeps in the, the influence, even, you know, Spaga was doing, uh, you know, kind of a jazz rendition of, uh, bird song, which was cool. And then we had, and I'm, I'm kind of disappointed that the gig never happened because he was you know, slated for the end of March. And at that point, it was the beginning of quarantine. But Saga was supposed to play, and, and you know, for, for your listeners, um, Saga is my piano trio, right? It is all of my synths stripped away, and it is me and a grand piano, an upright bass player, and a, a jazz drummer, right? Um, and Spaga was scheduled to play Brooklyn Comes Alive, but we were doing a Spaga Plays Dead, right? Which oh. these guys are not really, you know, they don't know much about the Grateful Dead catalog. They you know, know as much as kind of like they need to being versatile musicians. But, you know, aside from that, they don't have the similar type of like, you know, passion or, you know, forward leaning into the catalog. And so we arranged, you know, in like kind of like jazz renditions um, for, you know, piano trio, a great set of music that never got to be played, you know, and it was fairly, being that it's jazz and being that these guys are players of the highest level, um, you know, they were, they were intricate arrangements that I wish there was some sort of documentation of, you know, what they were. There's some stuff that exists on my phone from the multiple rehearsal sessions that we had. Uh, but yeah, man, that set list was looking like really, was looking really interesting. <laughs> well, hopefully we're going to get out there and be able to start playing things like that soon and getting back to at least some semblance of normalcy. Right. Uh, before I let you go, again, I want to thank you for taking the time. Before I let you go, I'd like to do a quick lightning round with you, man. No, don't think, just Ooh. answer. Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. First Grateful Dead show. Uh, 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 does Jerry Band count? Nine three eighty nine. Okay, and then what about the actual Dead? That was Jerry Band. Uh, you know? is I would say almost like a year later, September of ninety. I want to say. All right, so early horns being ver- invents right before they go to Europe. It, and everything. It, was, it was right after, uh, now that I think about it, so much for lightning round. Um, it was right after <laughs> uh, Brent had passed away. Yeah, so. yeah. Okay, back to the lightning version of this. Favorite show? Oof. Uh, uh, MSG, either 87 or 89, uh, wherever that morning dew is in there. Okay, studio recordings or live recordings? Uh, live recordings. Favorite dead album? 
Terrapin. Favorite non dead album? Uh, a Grateful Dead related uh, non dead album? Ace. No. Oh, oh okay. Uh, doesn't matter. Okay. Oh, it doesn't matter. I still get the answer. Um, yeah. Oh, man, these are, these are hard questions. It's so everybody funny. hates this one. This I, is the one that everybody hates. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Modesky, Martin, and Wood. It's a jungle in here. Nice. Favorite color? Turquoise. Fav- first job? Uh, waiter. Favorite venue to play? Red Dots. Best city for a day off? Moab. Where? Moab, Utah. Okay. Uh, I don't think I've ever had a day off in, in Moab. You got to plan it that way. Yeah, we hardly ever play Utah. We go to Salt Lake every once in a while, the depot, but that's about it. But but uh, Moab will get you between point A and point B. So Well, yeah. now that we have a new agent, we'll have to talk to Hank about that one when we get back on the road. There you go. Uh, first car. Uh, the, the, the Honda Accord. Current car. Uh, Acura RDX. Uh, what book are you reading right now? Uh, time travel fiction book. You have any magazine subscriptions? Time magazine, Rolling Stone magazine, um, and I read the newspaper every day like the old man that I'm destined to become. I do the same thing, and I won't let not the. It's got to be the actual paper. Yeah, exactly. Not, not, the, not the online version. Every I, morning, I carry it with me to like hotels and like look forward to that. So like, you know, if I leave for a tour on a Thursday, when I wake up at the hotel, you know, on Friday morning, I have the paper from the previous day. It used to be when we were on the road back and you could find a USA today, even though it's not the greatest paper, I had to find the USA today every morning, just so I'd have a paper to read. You know, there needs to be some, you know, normalcy and consistency when you're on the road. And if it's a paper or a cup of Starbucks, then that's what it is. (laughs) And the last of the lightning round, the first trip you will take when this is over and we can travel freely. (sighs) Anywhere outside of these four walls, man. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a big world out there, and I will be happy anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you, man. Well, hey, Aaron, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time this morning and uh, sharing your insight with everybody. Hopefully, we will uh, be able to cross paths again on the road very, very soon. All right, Rob. Thank you very much, man. That was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Stay safe. You too. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. I would like to thank Aaron Magner and Gavin Tabone for taking the time to be here. And I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Sarno Music Solutions and Blue Jade Audio, The Clean Store, The Authenticity Academy, and our newest sponsor, The Grateful Sweats, for all of their support. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music that you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner Dino English. I'd like to make one last reminder to please head over to www.patreon.com forward slash the music plays and become a subscriber to the music plays the band podcast. 
We have a few different subscription levels and a lot of fun things going on as companion content to each episode. I will be back again in two weeks, which will be March 11th, with episode 7 featuring Jeff Comenti, keyboardist from Dead & Company, Rat Dog, and so many other things. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We need to get live music back out there as quickly as possible. We need everyone's help in making that happen. Thanks for being here. People joining hand in hand While the music plays the band Look out setting us on fire Crazy rooster crowing midnight Balls of lightning roll along It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.